Well, if you've opened your program, you may already have noticed that this is going to be an interactive message this morning. So I'd like everyone to grab a pen that you find in the back of uh, your pew. You can use one if you've got one in a purse or a pocket. Um, And make sure you have a piece of paper. Now, if you didn't actually get a program, uh, turn to someone next to you. Have them tear it in half so at least you have some kind of paper or something to write on. You you can use your connection card in a pinch, but, uh, you know, make that the last resort. Um, So if you've got something to write on and something to write with, then we'll be ready to start. All right, our sermon, this, our sermon series these past few weeks has been titled Authentic. It's a study of the, first, uh, the New Testament book of 1 John. In order to be authentic, we need to be honest, especially honest with ourselves. So here's where the first exercise is going to come. In the margin of your paper or down below somewhere, I want each of you in the next 30 seconds to write down eight words, eight identifying words that would describe yourself. These could be adjectives or nouns or verbs, and they could be positive, negative, or neutral. Just eight words that you would use to honestly describe who you are. Now, I don't want you to belabor this. Don't think a ton about it. Just what are the first eight that come to mind? All right, I'm going to give you about 20 seconds. I did pretty good with like my first six, and those last two came a little hard for me. So if you're not done yet, you know, keep going if you'd like, but... Take a look at the words that you do have down on your list. Do you see any patterns in the words that you've chosen to describe yourself? Are most, are most of your identifiers having to do with what you do, whether it's your work or a hobby or a responsibility that you shoulder, something that you actively do regularly? Or maybe most of them have to do with relationships, relationships you have, people you're connected to. Maybe for others, the pattern might be things that you can control in your life, that you have chosen, choices you've made. Or maybe they're just things that are part of your nature, part of your life experience. See if there's a pattern there. These words, written in such a brief exercise, they're only an outline of your identity, who you experience yourself to be. One psychologist called our identity the I that each of us carries around inside of us. God knows and recognizes each of our unique identities, but when he looks at us, he sees so much more. My youngest daughter, Josie, she's uh, 17. She's a high school senior this year, and in a few short months, she is going to be out on her own and living in a different city. I won't be there with her to remind her of the things that she needs to do, the deadlines that are coming up. I won't be there to um, advise her on every situation that arises. I'll need to trust that as she faces the challenges that are inevitably going to come, that she'll remember what I've taught her, that she'll remember the priorities that I've tried to live out, the example I've tried to set, and most of all, that she'll remember who she is, no matter the circumstance, that she is a dearly loved person, dearly loved by me, important, special, and that no matter the circumstance or the distance, that I will always be there, available to help, even if it is not tangible. Well, this is much the same place that the writer of 1 John finds himself in. John, at this time, is an old man. And with age comes a certain anchoredness in your identity, in his identity. He was not swayed by engaging speakers or by the new ideas that were surfacing at the time. By this point in his life, he had seen it all. 
He had lived and worked with Jesus, and he knew firsthand the teachings that Jesus was giving. And now he was sitting on the margins, watching the people in this community that he loved face the challenges of division from new ideas within their community and the derision that they were facing from the outside. He wrote this letter of 1 John to remind them, remind them of what they had learned, to trust God, to love one another, and to live as God had directed. And running through this entire book are continual reminders to this community of believers of who they are in Christ, knowing that awareness of identity affects how they will live their life, how they will choose the relationships they're a part of, and how they deal with the conflicts that come. Since this thread of identity runs through the entire writing So bear with me as we recap a little bit of some of the items that we've studied in the past few weeks. So 1 John was written, first and foremost, to people who were followers of Christ. Let's look at this, compare this verse from 1 John 5.13, where John writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. We're going to compare that to a statement that John wrote in his biography of Jesus, what we call the Gospel of John, um, in John 20, 31, where John wrote in that book, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. The biography was written to people who didn't know Jesus. They had heard about Jesus. Maybe they had seen him. They were investigating while this book of 1 John was written specifically to believers. Second, 1 John was written to the community of believers at a time when some of their own began folding in some Greek philosophical understandings into the teachings that they had been given to create this new doctrine. At issue was Jesus' humanity. Many of these second and third generation Christians, they had little problem believing that Jesus was God. They had heard enough of the stories of what he had done and what he had taught, but instead they doubted his mortal life. They thought there's no way he could be human. Some of them taught that Jesus didn't really have a body. He just appeared to have a body. He didn't cast shadows or create footprints. Others said that Jesus' spirit just came and inhabited this body at the point of baptism, and then left before crucifixion. So he really wasn't fully human. This new teaching created division, which sparked anger and factions, creating the sense of the enlightened elite among the community. But John didn't want this kind of division to unsettle the church. Instead, he spoke about how there is a system of the world, and there is a system of God's kingdom, and they sometimes often are opposed to each other. Our senior pastor spoke about this last week, how the values of the world stand in opposition to God's priorities for his people. It shouldn't be a surprise. When followers of Christ encounter disagreement, rejection, or outright opposition from people who do not share their faith. But the church was growing And as it grew, this wider community of Jesus' followers was no longer ethnically homogenous. There were men and women. There were educated and laborers, Jews and Gentiles. The, The believers of Jesus were spreading throughout Africa and Asia and Europe. And as this community got bigger, John wanted to make sure that people 
were clear on the unity. And so this statement is found in 1 John 5. It's found in several places in the book. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John figured if people can agree on this, then there can be unity within the church. Now, the statement looks simple, but really there is a lot of richness in density in this statement. Let's unpack it a little bit. The beginning is Jesus. Unlike the Docetists and the Gnostics that I mentioned earlier, affirming Jesus as fully human was central to this doctrine of faith. As fully human, Jesus could model fulfillment of the law of Moses perfectly. He lived the sinless life, reversing the failure that all humanity had experienced up until then and brought Jesus to the point where he could accomplish the unique work that he was sent into the world to do, that of being the Messiah or the Christ, the anointed one of God who was able to stand in or to substitute for all of humanity when he gave himself over to death, death on a cross, in order to satisfy the life penalty for sin that the Mosaic law demanded. Jesus' resurrection after his death provided a tangible proof that the atonement was complete and that reconciliation with God was possible through faith in Jesus. And finally, the Son of God. Forty days after his resurrection, Jesus returned to heaven and fulfilled his promise to send the Holy Spirit into the world. Ironically, today it's not so much Jesus' humanity, which is the stumbling block for our society, People are very willing to admit that Jesus is a good moral teacher and that he lived in a distinct historic time. It's his divinity that some people call into question. John states that all three are critical to unity, belief in Jesus being fully human, in his atoning work on the cross, and on his full nature as God from the beginning of time into eternity. Paul wrote most eloquently about these three parts of Jesus' identity in his letter to the Philippians. In Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11, just listen to what Paul has to say about these three parts to Jesus' identity. He's describing Jesus and says, Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. That fully God. Rather, he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, fully human. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, that job atoning work of Messiah. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you have been hesitating to put your trust in Jesus as your Savior, let me encourage you to do that now, before we go on any further, even in this message, so that you can hear the remainder of this message as one of the Christ followers to which it was addressed. Right there in your pew, you can pray. You can acknowledge your brokenness and your inadequacies to God and put your trust in Jesus as your Savior, committing to seek God's guidance for the rest of your days. 
John wrote for the community of Christians. And what he wrote is a strong and striking account of the reality of their identity, which was found in Christ through their statement of faith. He told them that they possess right now a new life through their faith in Jesus, that they can and should know the certainty of all that they have received in him. Time permits us only to look at one verse for each item that he mentioned of this identity, but your program lists many other verses. If you'd like to dive deeper into any of these statements, I encourage you to do so after this service is over. So get out your pen if you've put it away. And we're going to look at nine different statements, nine ways that the world seeks to undermine a Christian's identity, and nine different ways that John wants us to know the assurance that, of, the, of the identity that we possess. The world is quick to remind us of all the ways that we've messed up and we are unworthy. Satan will drag up guilt and shame in our mind for failures that we have long ago confessed and and dealt with with God in an attempt to distance us from God. But the first item that all Christ followers need to know is that we are forgiven. The fact that God can use us, can use fallible human beings uh, for his good purposes in this world is a living display of his mercy and grace for everyone to see. Psalm 103 states that God does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. If you have confessed your sin to God, it is forgiven. It is remembered no more. Unless it's your last day on earth, placing your faith in Jesus does not mark the end of sin in your life, but it should mark the end of the power of sin. There'll still be times that you fail. We all mess up. We all fall short of God's ideal, but now it's different because you have unhindered access to God. Once you put your trust in Jesus, God sends the Holy Spirit to live within you, guiding you, strengthening you, convicting you to change your old patterns, your old ways of action or inaction in certain circumstances so that you can have victory over sin. 1 John 3.24 says, Those who obey God's commands live in, in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. And not only the Holy Spirit that dwells within you, but the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is our advocate. The Bible says that Jesus is advocating for us to the Father. Hebrews 7.25 says, Jesus always lives to intercede for us. Think about that for a minute. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he is interceding for you, for all of his followers. What do you think that Jesus is praying for you right now? What do you think he wants for you? John's readers looked out, and they saw their community divided. People were struggling, and those that had the means to help were keeping their distance. It's reasonable to think that they may have felt hopeless. But this is not true for Christ's followers. 
John reminds us that in Christ, we have a glorious future, eternal life in relationship with God. Peter calls this eternal life in 1 Peter a great and precious promise, a promise to participate in the divine nature and to escape the corruption of this world caused by evil desires. This sounds good, you might be thinking, but even though John talks about knowing these things, you may feel like you can never be sure. But remember that you can know the truth because you have the Holy Spirit living in you. Jesus called the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. And Jesus said the spirit will guide you into all truth. I remember as a young adult, as a young mom, I really wanted to study the Bible, yet I was holding on to this fear that if I really dived in, what I'd find was just a mess of contradictions that could torpedo my faith. But a mentor of mine encouraged me to pray before reading, asking the Holy Spirit to give me truth and wisdom and understanding. That was wise advice. The Holy Spirit is there, is available for every believer to help us understand and discern truth. John says that we already know the truth. Those of you who are Christ followers, we all know it. We just need to remain open to the Spirit's teaching. The world doesn't value spending time with God. It doesn't further our career. It doesn't lead to any sort of tangible advancement that others can admire. But it does remind us of a great and powerful truth that we are more loved and cherished than we can possibly know. Circumstances of this life attempt to derail our faith and make us feel distant from God. But Paul reinforces this truth in his letter to the Romans. In Romans 8.35, he writes... Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that in neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can rely on his love. A promise like that surely means that we'll find acceptance and success in this world. But that too is wrong thinking. John relays the message. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. John relays this message because this is the same message that Jesus gave his disciples on the night before he was betrayed into death. Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. This rejection should not derail Christ's followers, but it may leave you feeling weak. John writes, to dispel that error directly, 
returning to the fact that the Holy Spirit of God sent from the Father lives in you, and the Lord Jesus Christ is sustaining your life, and he's advocating for you in all circumstances. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. In John's biography of Jesus, in 16, John 16, Jesus tells his disciples, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The reality is that Christ's followers will face difficulties of all sorts, and some may even seem hopeless. But no matter the circumstance, Jesus has overcome them all, winning the final victory, a victory that is sure and eternal. This can leave you exhausted in the day-to-day circumstance that you may face. But in Christ, you are free to rest. It's a peace that Jesus gives his followers, not as the world knows peace, but a peace that passes all human understanding. A peace that is real and present in the midst of difficulties and weaknesses. That kind of peace is a hallmark of God's presence with the believer in any circumstance. When we abide in him and he in us, he will guide us not to do more and more, but to do that which is necessary and essential. To love God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. And to treat the people in our life, the people that come into our circumstances, with that same love. All the rest is superfluous. This is a really different worldview. You may believe that you are the only Christ follower that you know in your church, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your family. If you remember only one part of your identity in Christ, let it be this one, that you belong to God. John's verse here sums up to the extent to which we are loved. How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. God has adopted us into his family and bestowed on us the rights and privileges of family membership, unhindered access, close relationship, security, knowledge, wisdom, and peace. A stable sense of our of self and our identity cannot fully exist when our identity is placed in external things that shift and change and fall away. When our identity is tied to achievement, what happens when we inevitably fail at something? It becomes shattered. When our identity is tied to relationships, what happens when conflict arises, as it always does? We give too much power to let other people define us. That same psychologist that I mentioned earlier wrote that, An identity grounded in God would mean that when we think of who we are, the first thing that would come to mind is our status as someone deeply loved by God. So how can we keep our focus on our true identity in Christ? It's one thing to intellectually know these facts about our identity as a Christian, but it's another thing to live them out. 
Sometimes the beliefs of the world can get wedged into our thinking, reminding us of our failures and our weaknesses. When that starts to happen, call on your advocate Jesus who prays for you. Ask him to remove the lies and replace them instead with the truths about your identity in Christ. Root them strongly and have them grow deeply. You are forgiven. You have unhindered access to God. You have a glorious future. You can know the truth. You are loved and cherished even when you may be rejected by the world. You are stronger than you know. You are free to rest because you belong to God. Life in this world can be hard. People, even people who are close to you, can be so focused on their own difficulties that they don't even see yours. It would be easy for all of us to spiral into self-involvement and self-protection. But John calls for Christ followers to be people of grace fully aware of our identity in Christ so that we can be free to love without expectation and that we can be free to serve those whom God has placed in relationship to us. Read this list regularly as a reminder of the truth of who you are in Christ. In Christ Jesus, your great high priest, the lover of your soul, your brother, your friend, and your Lord will go with you and remain with you always to the very end of the age. Pray with me. Lord God, give us clarity to see ourselves the way that you see us. Help us to stand on your truth and guard our hearts with all vigilance. Teach us how to hear your voice and not believe the enemy's destructive lies about who we are. We thank you for our uniqueness, that we are each made in your image. We choose to believe the truth now about how you see us. We thank you that you've given us a hope into a glorious future. Help us live a fruitful life now and overflow with your love to others. Give us greater authority, Lord, in our prayer lives as we seek to know you on a deeper level and experience your presence with us each and every day. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray.